Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge-Muncie community. I'm David Moore. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley's interview about the potential conflict of interest surrounding Queeman's supervisor, George McHugh, and the Queeman's port development. Then, to close out Black History Month, Marsha Lazarus brings us an interview from the Writers' Institute. Author, political scientist, and professor Terry Gibbons spoke about SUNY's Albany's 21st celebration honoring Dr. Martin Luther King. Later on, Andrea Kunliff previews the current performance by Black theater troupe of upstate New York's Top Dog, Underdog. After that, we will speak with David Hochfelder about his project, 98 Acres, a social history from the time of the building of the Empire Plaza. Finally, we will hear this week's Tom Francis Talking with Poets, who interviews Cheryl Rice. But first, here are the headlines. The owners, operator, and landlord of the now-shuttered Saratoga Center for Rehabilitation and Skilled Nursing Care have agreed to pay back $7.16 million in false Medicaid claims in the settlement reached with the U.S. Department of Justice and the State Attorney General's Office. The Attorney General said residents endured deplorable conditions and neglect. The first public meeting of the U.S. Route 4 Corridor Study in North Greenbush has been postponed until 6.30 p.m. Monday, March 27. The meeting will be at the DeFriestville Fire Department, 350 North Greenbush Road, and via Zoom. Gary McCarthy will seek a fourth term for Schenectady Mayor. He will face a Democratic Party primary challenge from City Council President Marion Porterfield in June. The winner will face Republican Matt Nelligan in November. The record-breaking heat Earth endured during the summer of 2022 will be repeated without a robust international effort to address climate change, a panel of scientists warned Monday. Heat-related deaths, wildfires, extreme rainfall, and persistent drought are expected to become increasingly severe. Even if all greenhouse gas emissions cease today, Earth will continue to warm for several decades. The Times Union reports that with expenses skyrocketing and a lengthy construction delay, developers of the offshore wind tower plant slated for the Port of Albany want more money from the state above the $200 million already pledged. Subcontractors are being told to seek work elsewhere as the developers seek an additional $350 million in funding. That's it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org Email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org or call 518-272-2390. 
The Times Union recently highlighted potential conflicts surrounding Queeman's supervisor, George McHugh, ahead of Queeman's port expansion in state's wind turbine project. McHugh, former attorney for Carver Laraway, port owner, also received hundreds of thousands of dollars for being attorney for county sheriff in nearby towns. Local resident Sars, Sars Pruxima talks with Mark Dunley. The Times Union recently wrote an article that outlined some of the ongoing conflicts of interest um, that are involved in the town of Queemans, particularly with uh, George McHugh, who's now the guess, town supervisor, previously been the former general counsel for the Port of Queemans, which has often been a point of controversy uh, in the town, in particular with this owner, Carver uh, Laraway. And, and so we're going to do a couple of segments in the next week or so. Uh, but we're joined by uh, Sarah uh, Bruxma, um, who's a local resident. I noticed she was a former candidate you know, for the town board. But uh, Sarah, what, what were some of the key points that you thought was really important in the Tom Union story about George McHugh and his power and the fact he gets hundreds of thousand dollars you know, from, I guess, the county sheriff and local town boards to be a town attorney. He seems to become a quite powerful person while remaining perhaps pretty tight with the Port of Queens. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, one of the biggest takeaways is that the corruption that we're seeing now is not new. It's It's part of what's been going on for the past several years, and there's certainly no... Um, there's no surprise that it, that it's happening as soon as he got into uh, office. So when he when he started, um, you know, running for his campaign, um, you know, this was all part of the big plan. Um, you know, allowing the port to take over. He's got you know really close ties with um, Carver Laraway. Um, and I can certainly get into those specifics. So it's not exactly, um, you know, new news that um, McHugh's oldest son works for Carver Laraway. Um, McHugh's ex-wife is Carver's current wife. Another issue, you know, which is rather uh, strange is that Brandon Lefevre, he is a current um town board member for the town of Queemans. He also was newly um, appointed the um, deputy supervisor for the town. But Brandon is also um, related to McHugh now through marriage. So Brandon's sister married George's son. And Brandon also works for Carver. So if you can follow kind of like between all those dots, um, you'll see that the that the connections are just incredibly tight and there's um it's really hard for anybody to uh kind of infiltrate this this network that they've made well you know i don't, I don't live locally but i've you know followed news stories over the years and, and sort of a quick summary is you know sort of the owner of the board of uh, queemans has a reputation of being not particularly good for his workers and or the environment a little bit on the uh I guess conflict of interest up aside, he is part of the $200 million that uh, the state's going to provide primarily to Port of Albany, but some to Queemans about this um, 
you know, wind, wind turbine type of situation. But the two stories I remember coming out um, over the last couple of years was was one initially some type of proposal for ash to come in off into the port and then being put in the landfill and that was defeated hazardous ash. And then, you know, the cement plant there uh, in, in Ravina trying to import, you know, through the port um, tires to burn at the uh, cement plant in Ravina and, you know, the local residents passing rules to try to prevent that. And then, you know, McHugh running for re-election and trying to sort of, you know, overturn that. But what are some of the other, you know, I guess sort of town level political issues that continue to percolate? You know, one thing that is kind of a town political issue, but it's it's like it kind of runs even below the political scene or may, or maybe it really is the political scene, is that anybody with a difference of opinion is completely shut out. Um, also, if you are not from the area, you're an outsider, your opinion is discounted, you are, um, you know, treated as other than. So um, myself and many other people that um, I've, I've really grown very close with in, in the community, we are not, um, like our opinion is not valued. So we're not a part of their club. We weren't from here. Um, you know, even though I grew up just 15 minutes south of the area. Um, you yeah, know, so that's yeah. kind of a disturbing issue. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, I live in the town of Post and Gilmanster County, and uh, we have a lot of the same thing. And I just remember being at a town, last town, I used to be on the town board, but being at a town board meeting recently and my neighbor being criticized because he was a newcomer. He had only lived here 30 years. And why did he think at the 30 years his voice um you know, should be should be heard. Wow. Are there particular issues in front of the uh, town board that are up for consideration at the moment? Or what are some of the other conflict of interest that, uh, you know, either in the time story or not that you think should be highlighted? Um, one of the things that I think is, is worth noting is that before McHugh even took office, he absolved the uh, Queenman's Conservation Committee, and that was one of the reasons that I actually um, got into the political scene in the area, um, because I was really interested in this uh, conservation committee and the work that they were doing. And George McHugh knew right off, you know, right away that he had to dissolve that committee who was um, working on, um, you know, assembling this this whole map of our area and all of the natural resources. Um, and he, he really took the wind out of the sails um, for a lot of us people who, um, you know, value the environment. And what he did was he, he just spread a lot of lies about what the committee was doing or capable of. So that's really unfortunate. And that really brings us to where we are today because in 2020, he, um, put through uh, an addendum on the comprehensive plan. So while the majority of, you know, the community and of course the world was really suffering through COVID and, um, you know, just everything that came with that, he goes through and he puts through this addendum for the town, which uh, now bypasses all of the environmental protections that were in the comprehensive plan from 2006. And he, he put a lot more um, precedence on industrial 
growth and valuing industrial you know growth really um i mean that he, oh that's the way to bring tax dollars into town and jobs but you find that you're paying often more in taxes to provide the services and you're getting in terms of tax returns and the amount of local jobs you know usually doesn't materialize anywhere near the level it was promised or they don't hire local people Oh, right. I mean, there are certainly local people that are hired by these companies, um, you know, but I don't think it's as great of a volume as they like to make us think. And and I don't have the, the data on that. Um, but our taxes have actually increased since McHugh has been in office, but he will over and over and over again tell you that he's decreased them. And it's a flat out lie. I think our our taxes increased by, I, I might misquote this, but I think it was five something percent um, last year. Um, so so we, only have, we only have about a minute left. Often in these small towns, one of the areas you see a lot of conflict of interest is with the planning board and zoning board, which are often very much aligned with the local developers, not the needs of local residents. How is the planning, you mentioned the comprehensive plan, of course, is a problem, but what is the planning, you know, oversight in the city in like 40 seconds? Oh, um, basically right now it's it's what McHugh wants and he's got the people in place to do what he wants. And he knows, he's he either has people that are being paid by him or that are too afraid to speak up. Those are the people that he has in decision-making spots. So with the town planning board, he has combined the planning and zoning board to consolidate uh, what the businesses have to do to get any, you know, approvals or permits, you know, he's got the people in place that are, you know, big business owners or that he knows he can smooth talk. So that's one of the other things that he he does. Uh, we've been talking with Sarah Prusma. Site is cleanairalbanycounty.org. And this has been Mark Denley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. To find a link to the story referenced along with the interview you just heard. On our, you can find it on our website, mediasanctuary.org. Joining us now is David Hockfelder, SUNY Albany Associate Professor and Director of the Public History Program. David Hockfelder, whose research interests are in the U.S. history of technology, U.S. urban history, and digital scholarship. Along with historians Ann Fow and Stacy Sewell, he is working on a digital history of urban renewal in New York State called Picturing Urban Renewal. The project has received two planning grants from the National Endowment for the Humanities, and they are applying for implementation grants. David, welcome to the program. All right. What can you share with us about the, the history of your project and where you hope the, the outcomes to be? Sure. Um, we started our research around 2015. Um, I and my two colleagues, Ann Fow and Stacy Sewell, um, when we found a cache of photographs at the New York State Archives that documented the Empire State Plaza, the area where the Empire State Plaza is now, uh, the documented the area before demolition. And these photographs were taken by four state photographers who went around and photographed buildings, interiors and exteriors. And two of the four photographers really worked to get people in their homes and places of business 
into their photographs. So when we, we saw these photographs, we knew right away that we had the opportunity to tell a different kind of history of urban renewal, which is usually told from the, the planners and the policymakers' perspectives, that we had a real opportunity to tell a social history of urban renewal from the people who directly experienced it. Um, then we started a blog called 98 Acres in Albany. Uh, it's on WordPress. If you if your listeners Google 98, the numbers 98 acres in Albany, you'll get to our WordPress blog. Um, and about three years ago, four years ago, 2018, we decided to expand the focus to include other places in the state of New York because the same photographs that we found here at the state archives exist in virtually every other place that had federally funded urban renewal projects. Um, I need to clarify one thing, minor thing perhaps. The Empire State Plaza was funded by the state of New York. It was not a federal project, but the way that that project was carried out was very, very similar to federally funded urban renewal. So the same kind of records exist and the same kind of photographic record of residents and streetscapes exist in virtually every other urban renewal project around the state, if not around the country. What are some of the stories of the lives of people and have you been able to follow up on any of the generational histories? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> one of the strengths of the records is it does that, that you can get a window into people's lives. So I'm reminded of a family in Newburgh, one of the four places we're looking at for our picture of the renewal website, uh, the Gilbert Sharp family. And, um, uh, Mr. Sharp was a, a barber, and his shop and his family's home were both in the area that was taken for Newburgh's first urban renewal project in the early 60s. So um, Gilbert Sharp's wife, Sally, wrote several letters to Newburgh city officials, to the State Division of Housing and Community Renewal, and to the federal government. Um, complaining about the treatment of her family as well as other African-Americans um, subject to being displaced for this, this particular urban renewal project. So those letters are, are neatly typed, um, well-written, well-argued, and really give you a window into the experiences of the Sharp family. Um, Sally Sharp was pregnant and complained to the urban renewal agency that the apartment that they had been relocated into lacked running water in a bathtub and this was in the summer um so that's one story is is kind of how this family lost its residence and place of business another um uh story involves a woman named elizabeth Patton, again from newburgh who bought her house on contract which is a highly exploitive um purchasing practice that uh african-americans who could not obtain bank mortgages often would buy their homes on contract. That is, the seller of the home retained the deed and did not turn ownership of the property over until the buyer had made a, um, a certain number of months of consecutive monthly payments. And if the buyer missed a payment, the buyer could be summarily evicted as if it were late rent. So the buyer didn't have a chance to build equity. In any event, um, Mrs. Patton received a visit from the urban renewal officials in the spring of 1962 and they said you know we're here to help you relocate and she said well i'm not moving and she wouldn't let them in and she closed the door on them 
And this went on for several more months. Um, the Urban Renewal officials tried to get her church leaders, you know, ministers from her church and, and lay leaders to convince her to move. Her husband tried to talk her into moving and to no avail. She simply refused to, to budge. Finally, she was ordered evicted, you know, through a court order. And on the day that she left, there's a newspaper story in the uh, Newburgh Evening News about this. On the day that she left, there was a bulldozer waiting outside to tear her building down. And when she left her house, she locked the door, put the key in her pocketbook, and an urban renewal official said, you know, we're just going to, you know, you don't need to lock the door. We're just going to tear down the door. And she said something like, I don't care if it's my house. When I leave my house, I always lock the door. So... These kinds of stories about displacement, um, perceived mistreatment, perceived slights, um, resistance to these projects, like what Ms. Mrs. Patton had done, refusal to move. These are the kinds of stories that the local records can really bring to light and kind of humanize the, the, um, the way that urban renewal happened around New York State. We have a few minutes left. What were some of the strategic objectives and tactics used by the city and state to pursue this project? I'm not sure exactly what you mean by tactics. So <laughs> I will do what academics love to do, which is I will answer the question I think I heard. Um, uh, basically, the way the federal urban will operate, the federal government covered two thirds of the cost or in smaller cities, three quarters of the cost of acquiring properties um, demolishing the buildings and relocating tenants and owner occupiers. So for city officials in the 1960s and 1950s, this was effectively free money. No municipal official is going to turn down millions of dollars in federal money to remake their cities. And this is a period when um, the perception was fairly common. Most people in the country believed that urban America was in a state of crisis and that the way to solve this crisis was to eliminate slums and blight by tearing down, you know, entire neighborhoods through wholesale clearance of, of blighted neighborhoods. So no municipal official, no elected official was going to tear, was going to turn down this money. Um, so as far as tactics to encourage city officials to start these projects, there really wasn't much in the way of arm twisting that had to happen. As far as the residents, business owners, tenants, owner occupiers of affected areas. They weren't really given any choice uh, in the matter. The city had the power of eminent domain and effectively declared that this neighborhood, these blocks are going to be an urban renewal project. We're going to acquire them. You know, we'll compensate the owners. We'll find attempt to find new apartments for tenants. But there's no stopping the process at that point um, because of eminent domain. So the tactics were basically court orders, if you want to think about it that way. City officials, urban renewal officials, can enforce their will by bringing the power of the judicial system and the police power of the city to bear on people who are reluctant to cooperate. Thank you, David. With a minute left, do you see any uh, critique for public policy practices in the future? That's a good question. Um, I think the profession of urban planning, urban planners today realize that urban renewal, which was the fashion, you know, 50 or 60 years ago, has fallen out of favor and that this kind of wholesale clearance was a mistake. That said, I think the overriding lesson is infrastructure and changes to infrastructure last for generations. 
So be very humble in your approach to urban planning and city design because the choices we make today will be around with us in our grandchildren's lives at the end of this century. So um, be very humble and circumspect in how you go about um, problems dealing with masses of people and the built environment. David, we thank you so much for being with us and for your, your patience, your research, your scholarship, and your effort. Sure, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the time. Thank you very much, David. The link to the website, 98acresinalbany.wordpress.com, will take you to the research of David Hochfelder. And for those of you just tuning in, that's David Moore. This is Sina Bazilahickey, and you are listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP uh, 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. And if you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Gene Remy Monday of Black Theater Troupe of Upstate New York, B-I-B-T-T-U-N-Y, is in conversation with Hudson Mohawk Magazine's Andrea Cunliffe. Their 2022-2023 season at the Capitol Repertoire Theater, where the company is eager to share their stories from their new stage with their new current production of Top Dog, Underdog. BTTUNY and the Capitol Rep are collaborating to keep their commitment to diversity on stage. And Gene Remy Monday hopes that this production will give the audience something to think about as they leave the theater. Black theater troupe of upstate New York and the well-known and much highly respected Jean-René Monet is with us. <laughs> Hello, thank you, thank you, thank you. You've got a couple of productions coming up and it looks like an exciting year for you, 2023. All the great excitement started in 2020, 2021, 2022, and then we have our current production, which is 2022-2023 season, Top Dog, Underdog, working on now, and then that one goes up March 2nd through March 12th, and it's going to be on the main stage at Capitol Web Theater on North Broad Street. Yeah, I'm very excited about it. I have two wonderful, talented actors that just going to set that roof on fire. What made you select this particular play? Well, this one, you know, because we only do specific plays about our struggle and tell stories what's going on with our lives, with our past and oppression and slavery and racism. But even once in a while, we do something slightly different, but still tell the message what we have to deal with as black people. Top Dog and Underdog is not different. It's about two brothers who were left on their own by their parents, give them some money, each $500, and say, you're on your own. And the parents split, and parents left, and they tell the little brother, take care of your old brother. And they were teenagers. They were out there in the world by themselves, and there was a lot of conflict, and they have to deal with racism and out there 
Lankel, the older brother, ended up getting a job playing Lankel in the Carnival Arcade. His job was supposed to be sitting as if he's in a theater. We're sitting in a chair and then somebody's supposed to be shooting at him. But there's a lot of conflicts they have to deal with between the two of them. I don't want to give too much for the play because, you know, I want it to be a nice surprise. And, yeah, and this is still what's going on. And you have kids never grew up with their parents. And now suddenly they're on their own. So that will affect them emotionally and mentally. And when kids don't have a good education and then they don't have parents with them, they don't have teachers. So they ended up doing a lot. Regardless of what their race, if you don't have that good home, you're going to have mental issues going to affect you. And then when you're black, it's even worse because you do something, commit a crime or something else, the first thing they do, they throw you in prison instead of giving you help compared to if they were white. That's one of the reasons why I chose that play to tell their stories. The second reason, when I was young, I always wanted to play one of those characters myself as an actor, but I wasn't ready for it, you know. When language is not yours, you're taking on a big project like this. It makes it a little difficult for you. And then when I was ready to do it, then I got too old. So as a producer, I find somebody else to tell the story for me. It is a powerful play, a lot of tension, a lot of fun, and the ending will surprise you. So, yeah, so that's some of the reason why I chose to do it. And the third reason, as any other play, is to give opportunities for our local black actors and people of color. And that, which is one of the reasons I started the company. You know, all our actors are either very experienced actors locally or have no experience at all. As long as you're interested, we don't charge you money to train you. You get your training on stage. I'll hold your hand. By the time we open, you will be up there. People will never know that this is your first production. One of our actors, this is his very second production. His name is Alexander Heck. I met him in a play. Uh, I directed the piano lesson for University of Albany. And then he came to audition at the same time that I was trying to cast my show, Tap Dog on the Dog. I knew I had one of the actors in mind, the Lincoln, Michael Lake, very experienced local actors, you know, very popular one here. But I needed somebody that can really match him. And then when I met Alex, he came to audition for general lesson. And I said, oh, my God, I think I just found my booth. But I still had to audition him because I want to give other actors a chance. There could be somebody else. He had audition. I asked him to come in. And then he was good. He was really good. And then uh, I ended up casting him. The general lesson was his first production. And Top Dog on the Dog is his second production ever. That's what we do. We give new actors a chance. I can tell, I always can tell when somebody's good. I don't even have to audition. You're having a conversation, which is more important to me. Get to know your personality, your attitude. That's more important to me than you having 20 years experience. 20 years experience doesn't mean nothing to me if I can't work with you. I'd rather work with no experience, but I know I can work with you. You respect yourself, you respect me, you work hard, you have a great attitude, great personality. That's more important to me. So those two actors are wonderful. They started to look like brothers to me, and we're still rehearsing. Just two actors. Just two actors, but there's so much in that play, and we have a great crew, you know, helping. Now, people usually, they come see a play, they see actors, they have... They didn't do that themselves. There's a director, there's a stage manager, there's the crew, there's the costume, there's 
somebody wanting light and sound, making them beautiful on stage, and people don't realize all that. I got great crew and a great actors of this show. The Black Theater Troupe of Upstate, really a great <laughs> company, and you and you well, take I, such pride in teaching people and working with them. Not only in trying to build something, I cannot treat them like actors coming in, do your job, and go home. I can't. I have to, you know, I cook for them. I bring them snack. I bring them water. I treat them. I When they come, I want to make sure if they're okay, if they have anything going on. I want to be part of their life, be their brothers, their big brothers, their fathers, like family. And I want them to, when they wake up, they can wait to get to rehearsal. And that way, they want to come back, do what they started to enjoy, to love. They want to come back to me and to other theater companies. Because of trying to build something, I have to be patient. I cannot treat them like regular actors, uh, unless they already experienced actors. Like Michael in this show, Michael Lake is very experienced. He's a seasoned actor. You've worked with him before. Oh, yeah. Michael is like my son when I first met him some 15 years ago. And he thought that was his age. And then when I told him my age, he said, oh, my God, you're my father's age. Do you have a stable of people that you work with on a regular basis or are you continually looking for new people to come and audition or to come and contribute? A lot of people are confused because we're the Black Theater troupe. Usually a troupe only use one group of people that do all the shows. No, we are a regular company, always looking for new actors. And we work with actors who work with us in the past. Yes, they keep coming back. Almost every production we have, you know, at least one new actor. I'm out meeting people every day. In fact, the person playing the lead role for my next show never been on stage. She came to the audition. You know, she was good. But because this is such a big play, I always get nervous casting somebody who's never been on stage or somebody that I don't know well enough. But talk to them, sit down and get to know them. I mean, I took that chance anyway with actors, but you still have to be nervous as a director, as a producer, working with somebody who never worked before and casting them in a big role. The next show, I cast this young lady playing the lead role, and she's great. She's never been on stage, but that's what I do. Take my chance. Almost nobody else was giving them a chance before. Nobody was casting them, you know, especially they weren't doing enough play for black people or people of color. You know, and if they do, they cast somebody who has experience. But what happened to those whose theater was their dream? You know, somebody has to give them a chance. So that's what we do. That's what I do. And you give them a chance. Take my chance on them. And I teach you. I train you. And I work with you. And this is how we're changing things. And things are getting better. A lot of theater companies doing casting, you know, BIPOC actors which is a good thing, but I'm going to continue bringing them, you know, bringing them, training them, and working with them, uh, all ages. Do you ever, do you use white people in your shows? Oh, God, see, that's what people think, because we are black theater troupe. I want people to know that we may be the black theater troupe, but we are very diverse. Yes, there's many shows, it's, you know, all of black actors, uh, but you have to remember, most of our stories also involve white people, even if the white person gets to play the racist guy, but it's still diverse. <laughs> you know, we have many stories where it's very diverse, you know, friendship. You know, as I'm saying that now, many people listening to this who has worked with us, they're white actors, our crew, we're very diverse. It opens yeah. uh, March 2nd, and it runs through the 12th, and that's at the main stage? <laughs> 
That one's going to be on the main stage at Capitol Rep Theater. This has been Andrea Cunliffe speaking with Jean-Rémy Monet of the Black Theater Troupe of Upstate New York. To find out more about this performance, to go to our website, mediasanctuary.org. To close out Black History Month, Marsha Lazarus brings us the story from the New York State Writers Institute. There she interviewed Arthur, political scientist, Professor Terry Gibbons, at the celebration honoring Dr. Martin Luther King. We will also hear from nine-year-old poet Caden Hearn, who shares his poem, In My Mind. One of the things that really influenced the development of the story in this book was when my father passed away from a heart attack in 2001. And so as I was processing my grief, I, you know, I always want to understand why. You know, why did this happen to my dad at the age of 73? You know, he wasn't that old. And um, as I looked into the data and the research, basically one of the risk factors for having a first heart attack and unfortunately passing away from it was being an African-American male. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Marsha Lazarus. Standing here with Hayden Hearn at the Writers Institute event where Terry Givens, author of Radical Empathy, will be talking. And I understand, Caden, that you will be part of the program because you are a poet. Yes. How long have you been doing poetry? Um, for about two years. How did you get started with poetry? Um, my grandmother asked me a lot of questions, and I asked her a lot of questions about like what's going around on the world, in the world, and on the news, and. She, um, she said to write down my thoughts, and that eventually became a poem. And we just decided to, like, it, st- it started out, out small, like, staying in, in front of uh, little uh, audiences and st- in places, but then it got bigger and bigger, and yes. Mm. How did you meet Terry Givens? Thank you very much. Um, oh, so basically, they invited me to the college and to speak, and yeah, we accepted. She asked me, yes. Wow. Could you talk a little bit about the kind of poetry that you write? Is there a certain theme or subject? Um. Yes, like whatever I see on the news, um, or like an idea comes up in my head, I just write it. Began writing poetry at the age of six as a way to process his thoughts, process his emotions around the Black Lives Matter movement, including protests that arose from the complexities associated with the killing and the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd. And at this time, Haven has five poems. Registered at the United States Library. Kernan, is there a particular poem that you're really proud of? A, a certain subject? Yes. Um, the poem's called In My Mind. In my mind, I used to be a child of poverty, not knowing that hopes and dreams can become reality. In my mind, I thought it was fine to sit in the back of the classroom because my teacher never asked me to read or write, but little did she know I was ever so bright.
and allowing people to actually tell me who they are um, and trying to really understand who they are. Because too often, and, and to be fair, this is our, our primal brain wants to put people into categories. And so we have to be intentional. And intentionality is so important in this process of radical empathy because if we just kind of go along and put people into categories, and we may be very different people, but it's really opened you up to a broader set of experiences. And I believe cultural humility is really important because it opens you up to lifelong learning. You're trying to learn about the culture. And so it's a lifelong learning process. And that's why empathy uh, has to be practiced. And I always say you know, we have to be willing to allow each other to make mistakes so we can create that safe space for all of us to ask questions and share our experiences. And, you know, it's, it's funny when I he was doing work in the DEI space. Um, I would have people say, well, you know, I'm a white person. I feel like I can't ask these questions. And I'm like, well, the reality is if you don't ask the questions, how are you going to get the answers? How are we going to know what you need to understand? And so, but it's also incumbent on all of us to create that space, to allow people to ask the questions, to allow people to make mistakes. We're all, we all make mistakes. Nobody's perfect. But as Dr. King would tell us, we have to take action. And that's, people always say, what's the radical part of empathy? The radical part is taking action. We have to do something. And so each chapter of the book ends with things you can do to take action. It be as simple as deciding tomorrow, I'm going to say hello to that person I've seen walking by my office for the last you know, few weeks, and I'm, I don't know who they are, and maybe I should just introduce myself and, and ask a question about them. <laughs> um, you know, uh, when I was in Austin, I saw you know, dealing with my parents' health issues and my family's health issues. I said, I'm going to start a an organization called Take Back the Trail that creates fitness programs for women in East Austin. Doing something rather than just saying, you know, talking about the problem is so important. Yeah, I don't think we understand the power and influence we have if we could all just decide that I'm going to speak up about this issue. And so taking action is one of the most important parts of this. But I also remember being inspired by uh, you know, great speakers like Shirley Chisholm and Barbara Jordan. So there's all these different ways that I saw how people could do something. And I chose to become a professor partly because I realized I could do research that nobody else was doing. <laughs> um, and it's funny because that really came to a culmination just in this last year when my book, The Roots of Racism, was published because I you know, spent time doing research just to understand you know, kind of the history of political science and you know, how the discipline had developed. And I realized you know, it's something I thought about in the back of my mind that hadn't really articulated well, but just the fact of being a black woman meant that I was doing research that was different than most of the people before me. Last slide, thank you. <laughs> I just want to let you guys know I would love for you to connect with me. Um, I have my website, I have LinkedIn, and now I'm going to open it up to questions. The interview with Terry Gibbons was produced by Marsha Lazarus. Keeping with the theme of writing and poetry, it is that time in the week for a highlight of a poet with Tom Francis. This week, he highlights Cheryl A. Rice. Cheryl A. Rice is the author of Love's Compass, My Minnesota Boyhood, and co-author with Guy Reed of Until the Words Came. 
a Best of Net nominee. Rice is also the host and founder of the now-defunct Sylvia Plath Bake Off, perhaps the world's first combination poetry reading and baked good competition. On April 17, 2015, Cheryl read her poem, Coins, at the UAG Gallery on Lark Street as part of the Albany Word Fest. In our conversation, we talk about that poem, whether family plays a role in her writing, how life experiences shape art, and her time running that event. When I was a kid, my Uncle Hun was in the Navy. There was a lull in Vietnam, and he was nowhere near the action, but still, he saw quite a bit of the world, at least the ports, and at least some places where money was exchanged. He sent me a letter and a collection of coins from around the world, taped to an envelope-sized piece of cardboard, and carefully labeled with the names of the countries they came from and what they were called, Spanish peso, Greek drachma, Italian lira. I still have the coins all these years later, but at some point I separated them from the cardboard, maybe wanting to feel them in my hands like the people in those other countries did. Now we have euros, and many of those same countries use a single coin. I have those too. I think of those first coins as the seeds of my informal collection. I've added others as I've spotted them in cash register drawers over my long and varied career in retail. As Sacagawea came and went, I kept those too. And poor Susan B. Anthony, victim in her lifetime and afterwards of poor design. <laughs> I have a glass jar filled with coins that will only confuse the clerks at Stewart's. They can barely count change back in American coins as it is. I myself purchased coffee and gas with a debit card, saved my quarters and bills for the toll takers on the bridge. There's a wealth in my coin collection beyond its monetary value, of course. I will never travel as far as Uncle Hun, who is no longer technically an uncle, his travels having taken him beyond my family, beyond my aunt he married, to a Florida and a steamy afterlife I am no part of. <laughs> it took me until the age of 51 to even get a passport. It was for work, five days in Costa Rica, howler monkeys for alarm clocks and first degree burns on my back. My European skin no match for the tropical sun. I may go to Canada, Toronto looks like fun. I don't see myself crossing either ocean. I hate flying. And boats? After the Lusitania, who can trust boats? <laughs> if wanderlust should strike, I'll pull out my coin jar, let the euros fall through my fingers, transporting me to a time when a whole world was contained on a single piece of cardboard. I, had, I have a lot of ex-uncles. This is one of my ex-uncles who was an uncle when I was growing up and he was in the Navy. He didn't see action, but he sent me this card the size of a business envelope, just a piece of cardboard with all these coins he'd collected around the world. I don't know what um, inspired him to do that, maybe because I was a bright kid and he just thought I would appreciate it. We got along really well. I guess we still would if he wasn't a Trumpy, but uh it's uh, that it's really that simple and uh, and maybe missing him and missing that relationship. And I still collect coins, but it's only what I've run across in my in my retail careers. I'll throw it in a jar. I have a whole jar of coins. But really, um, that it was as simple as that. I asked Cheryl if family is a theme or influence in her writing and has it been over the years? 
there's a lot I'm, I've become more and more reluctant to even talk about or explore. I think when you're younger, you work with the experiences you have and your experiences are in childhood and, and adolescence and young adulthood. Um, now I, I have my own experiences. I, not that I feel like I'm coming to the finish line, but um, the things I want to write about now are, are in my own adult life, my adult adventures. Um, my parents, uh, I don't want to talk about them much anymore. You know, I, it, it's, there comes a point where it's, it, it, there's just no point to it. I, I figure things out on my own. I'm not going to brutalize them or try to tear them apart for what they are. Their, their humanity has become more apparent to me. So, uh, there's no, there's no point in it. I, it, there, I have my own experiences and my own decisions and, uh, it's it, family's always there, but it's it's less and le I'm less and less uh, inclined to. I don't want to say dirty laundry, but I'm less and less inclined to to use them as a jumping off point. I have things I I want to finish up before I'm done, in my own experiences. And what are those experiences that she's writing about as an adult? I have a. I've long had a, a novella, novel, whatever, memoir I've been working on about um, my, my, uh, I got married when I was 19 and moved out when I was 25, surreptitiously moved out and in between experienced some physical abuse. Although I minimize it in my mind because he was physically so much smaller than me, but nevertheless, you know, he was domineering. He was jealous. He was violent. I got two black eyes, so he, he did enough that way. And that whole experience, why I got into that and how I got out and how it, you know, it, it affected me in, in a lot of ways that are probably similar to PTSD. I have my whole year in Albany I've written a little bit about, but that might, that might come into play a, a little bit more, but I have these chunks of my life I want to document. It, it's funny because how settled things have been in the last 15 or 20 years. I don't feel like I have a big drama to, to write down. Um, but those two periods of one year in Albany and then maybe the five or six years during that, it, it wasn't a marriage. It was legally a marriage, but uh, it was uh, me fighting to find myself as well as fighting to get out of that relationship and get on more solid ground. It made me who I am today, but wasn't the easiest way to do it. For over a decade, Cheryl hosted the Sylvia Plath Bake Off. Among various reasons, she had to end the annual event due to pending legal action from Pillsbury. I asked her to talk more about the genesis of the reading and how it was received. The original impetus was when I was living in Albany, I was hosting an open mic at Air Studio once a month, and I thought I would come up with a, a theme once a month, just as an extra draw, just, just for a little more attention. Like one month, it was Howard Stern versus uh, Rush Limbaugh. I, you know, just things off, off the top of my head. And the Sylvia Plath Bake Off, because Sylvia passed in February of 63. So I tried to tie that in with Valentine's and just something along those lines. But that in and of itself, that was like the only theme that actually had an afterlife after I stopped doing once a month at the air studio and it, it got to be very very big it also was never disrespectful um and uh i oh it, also her family was a, a bit litigious in terms of uh, the rights 
use I never used her stuff, but people would write odes to her in, in the voice of and, you know, along the lines of some of her favorite topics um, like that that horrific biopic Sylvia they couldn't they never got the rights to use Sylvia or Ted Hughes's work so they quote Shakespeare to each other which is just <laughs> absurd but ultimately I, I I number one I couldn't find a venue big enough I think the last one I did at the Unitarian in Kingston and uh, somebody forgot to open the door for me somebody forgot to come and unlock the door so I had like 50 people out in the cold in February and nowhere to go Mm -hmm. um also when you got when you get to a certain age it's it's, it's not funny anymore it's right. just not i you know she was 30 31 and now i'm gonna be 61 tomorrow i you know i i not that i have as deep mental situation as she had but you go through all that stuff and you understand that agony and like i said nobody came and made fun of sylvia they made fun of the tropes they made fun of the uh we had a Barbie dolls in marzipan or, you know, cake shaped like ovens, and mm -hmm. marzipan embryos, all the, everybody touched on every theme, but uh, nobody came in disrespectfully about Sylvia and her work. Cheryl's poems have appeared in such anthologies as Riverine, For Enid with Love, and A Slant of Light, as well as in the Baltimore Review, Chronogram, Home Planet News, and The Temple. Rice has been featured and venues from New York City to Troy for many years. Her random writing poetry workshops have gathered throughout the Hudson Valley, where she has made her home for the last 40-odd years. For Hudson Mohawk Magazine, I'm Tom Francis. Tom Francis Talking with Poets appears weekly on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. And that's our show. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm David Moore. Our engineer is Sina Basila Hickey. We thank all of our volunteers who made today's episode possible. Headlines from Mark Dunley. Segment producers Mark Dunley, Bria Barthel, Marsha Lazarus, Andrea Kunliff, Tom Francis, and your host, David Moore. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at media.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. And that's our show. It's Nico, the youngest producer. You've been listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, featuring news and views from around the New York Capital Region. Listen at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. on Sanctuary Radio, 105.3 FM, Troy, and online at mediasanctuary.org. You can also visit mediasanctuary.org anytime to hear the Hudson Mohawk magazine on demand or to sign up for our podcast. <laughs>